All right, we're starting something new today in, in, in our class. It's, it's great to have Sabina with us today from out, out from California. Have her back with us. It's a, it's a real joy to have you here in person. Uh, and as those who listen to our lessons or those who are here know, we focus a lot on expository teaching here, going through books of the Bible, as opposed to not so much topical uh, preaching, and uh, we try to balance the New Testament from the, the Old Testament. So we just went through First and Second Peter. Before that, we did Exodus. So we'll tend to go back and forth. And this week, we were deadlocked and not knowing what to do next, what we're going to cover next. So I decided that in, in the in the face of a draw and in conclusion, what I was going to do is uh, I've been reading in the Psalms, and and actually. Studying Peter got me into reading the Psalms, so I'll explain maybe how that happened later on. But uh, so I was reading reading through the Psalms. I thought, well, let's just start going through the Psalms. Now, don't worry, we're not going to be spending the next three years going through the Psalms. That was (laughs) that's how long it would take. With one Psalm a week, it would take three years. So I figured, let's just do a few Psalms, and uh, starting from Psalm one, we'll do a few Psalms over the next few weeks, and then we'll figure out what book we want to tackle next, probably something in the Old Testament, and then maybe later on we'll go and do a few more psalms later. And I figure at this rate, uh, by the time I hit the last psalm, should I be fortunate to live long enough, I'll be in my 90s in a nursing home somewhere. <laughs> have out of it. So that's, that's what, uh, that's kind of, uh, I, I have no, no pretensions that I'm going to cover, live long enough to cover all the psalms at the rate we're going at, but... <laughs> Let's let's have fun and, and enjoy uh, learning as much as we can. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> so I want to start off with a little introduction to the Psalms. This is kind of my own personal quirky introduction to the Psalms, how, how I'm approaching the Psalms and what I hope to get out of this class and what they have meant to me. The Psalms have meant different things to me at different times in my life. And because uh, kind of where where I am today with the Psalms, my earliest recollection of the Psalms comes from first and second grade, and this will tell you how old I am. Okay, I'm I'm definitely the oldest person in the room here, and so uh, I am old enough that in first and second grade, attending public school. They had a Bible in the class, and they would start the class by a Bible reading and by praying. So, and this was, and in, in the country has changed a little. I've seen a little few changes in my lifetime here in this country. On June 17, 1963, John Kennedy was president at the time. The Supreme Court came down with an 8-1 to one decision that said you can't have you can't have uh, public prayer, and you can't have Bible reading in the class. So the Bible disappeared after that point in time. But I was, so I was a little kid. But I remember, <clears throat> even from the early days, there'd be a Bible in the front of the class, and 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 they would a lot of times they'd read Psalm twenty-three, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." And I was a few years ago. I was attending a funeral where most of the people there were was an older person who died. Most people were older than I was, and the whole crowd was able to recite Psalm 23 from the King James. And I thought, that's pretty amazing. And it was because when they were young, they heard this so many times. So that was my introduction to the Psalms. Uh, In my 20s, I became part of a church that was very focused on on personal Bible reading and study. And I noticed that some people had Bibles with the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some people had, you know, didn't want to carry as much weight around, so they just carried the New Testament and then there were some people who were kind of in between, and they had the New Testament plus the Psalms. So I figured, wow, that's kind of interesting. Of all the things in the Old Testament, they just picked the Psalms. So maybe that's the most important part of the Old Testament, I thought. Or maybe all the rest of the Old Testament has been canceled and done away with by Jesus. We don't need it anymore. And so I figured that wasn't the case. So maybe that's the case, and 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 and. And, and we just need the Psalms for that reason, because the Psalms are still good for devotional purposes. And I ask people from time to time, what are you reading in your own in your own study in the Bible? If somebody said, I'm reading the Psalms right now, my conclusion would be, you must be having a tough time, because that's the go-to place 
for people who are suffering and who are struggling and are looking for mm. something to calm them down and to let them know God's in control and to give them peace on the inside. That's it's not a bad thing, but that's why I said, oh, you must be having a tough time right now because you're reading the Psalms. And, and a lot of times that was the case. <clears throat> and, I, and I think about Psalm 23 is the best known Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, yea, even though I travel through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me, your rod and your staff come for me. So this is, this is the Psalms. And uh, also there are Psalms in, for personal devotional life. There, there are a lot of Psalms, uh, particularly uh, Psalm 103, 4, 5, 6 in there that, that, that talk a lot about thanking God and praising God. So for some of us, it's easier to just ask God for all the things we want rather than to stop and acknowledge God and praise God and thank God. So the, the Psalms, particularly some of the Psalms of David, really help us to connect with that aspect of worshiping God. And also another, another Psalm is for people who, who end up falling into sin and feeling bad about that, They'll go to Psalm 51. That's where David sends with Bathsheba. And have mercy on me according to your great mercy. A broken and humble heart you will not despise. So we were, it helps us to get in touch with the mercy of God. <clears throat> when we feel like we especially need it. So the Psalms really, for most Christians, think of the Psalms in connection with personal devotional life. That's... That's the mindset that most people have. That's, that's the value of the Psalms. And so for much of my Christian life, I really didn't focus on the Psalms so much. I also noticed that you know, there are Christians that tend to be more the thinkers and more the feelers in, in terms of how people are wired differently. And I know this will be shocking to, to most of you. But I'm not one of the on the ones on the feeler side of the spectrum. So I do have feelings. All right, I do feel things. All right, Allison said I have a feeling. Maybe one feeling. Okay. <laughs> Singular in my case. No, that's not true. It, 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 I'm definitely. I, I'm, I'm getting in touch with more of them as I grow older. I'm mellowing out a little bit, getting more in touch with. Actually, I do feel a lot of things, and you know I can't just stuff everything. But but I'm more, I'm a little more on the cerebral side. More thinking. There people people tend to be both ways. And amen. This this is God made us different. Opposites tend to attract. So that says something about Allison here too on the other side. So, uh, but I wanted to know what's God really like. What is God like? What does He want me to do? How do the pieces fit together? How can I persuade other people to follow Jesus and to follow God? So that's so I would focus on on other places in the scriptures because I didn't think Psalms is necessarily the place. I had I had a stereotype my my mind what the Psalms were for. Well, the other thing was, you know, maybe it's my my natural tendency to be a bit of a contrarian. Whatever whatever the crowd is doing, I figure <laughs> I'm going to go the other direction. So, so um, it makes life interesting. And I told Allison the other day, I said, you know, uh, any fish can go downstream, including dead ones, but you have to be a live fish if you're swimming upstream. So that's, that's Allison liked that line. So, so I'm kind of the, the fish that, that likes to swim upstream against the current once in a while. So while most people were focusing on the New Testament, I thought, yeah, I'm going to be, I'm going to be more helpful to the church if I focus my study on the two-thirds of the Bible that most people are ignoring. So that's so that I can be more of a help. Why do what other people are doing a, just a perfectly good job at? So, that, so I decided early on I'm going to focus on things that other people may be, for whatever reason, neglecting a little bit. So I was looking at the Old Testament, but really not at the Psalms so much. But then... You know, on the one hand, I said, you know, we're done studying Peter. We just went through First Peter and Second Peter, but we're not completely done with Peter because because uh, I, there's a little little vestige of Peter that's going to seep through into this class too, uh, as you will see. One of the things, you know, like most people will focus on Paul, I'll focus on Peter, and uh, also because Peter was 
the the foremost student of Jesus of all the apostles. He spent three years with him, and so we don't have nearly as much writing from Peter as we do from Paul. But wow, the the things that we do have to me, I have been mining those for quite a while, and I'm stunned by the gold that I continue to pull out of the mind that I wasn't aware that was there before from Peter. I've learned so many things from carefully and slowly studying. And it's easy to do because it's just first and second Peter and the first half of the book of Acts. That's pretty much pretty much it as far as Peter's teaching. Uh, and then you see the character of Peter in, in the gospel. So uh, just from looking at Peter... And I was thinking about how did Peter look at the Psalms? And actually, there's a tremendous amount to learn about the Psalms from how Peter used it. Because the question is, how, how are we Christians today supposed to use the Psalms? What are the Psalms for? Was it for, was it, and they're perfectly good for personal devotional life, but, but in looking at Peter and how he used the Psalms, I see so much more than that. And I'll give you an example. In Acts chapter 1, okay, this is, we're just going to look at the first four chapters of Acts and a little bit in, in Peter's letters. How, somebody can keep a count here for how many times Peter is referring to the Psalms and, and, and what he's doing with the Psalms when he refers to them. So start in, in Acts chapter 1. The apostles gathered together in Jerusalem. Jesus is ascended into heaven. In verse 15, it says, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples altogether. The number of names is about 120. And said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, this man purchased a field of wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of it, and his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So the field today is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. And so, so, there, so he's saying, look, uh, he quotes from Psalm 69 here in Septuagint, it, it's, it's 68. And he quotes from Psalm 109. Uh, so the Septuagint number is, numbering is, is one, one less than that. So he's saying Psalm 69 is a prophecy about the crucifixion of Jesus. And he, so he points to that. And, and the, other, the other Psalm 109, let another take his office. So he, he goes to two of the Psalms and said, well, if this explains what just happened and also explains from the Psalms what we need to do next. The day of Pentecost, when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, once he gets the attention of all the people and he starts proclaiming in Jesus that Jesus was raised from the dead, the first place he goes to in his explaining this he goes to Psalm 16, and he quotes from that extensively. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. This is in Acts 2.25. He's at my right hand. It might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced. My tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. You will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, etc. So Peter quotes from Psalm 16. So now we're up to three Psalms that he's, he's hit so far. And so he uses the psalm to convince the Jews that the son of David was physically raised from the dead. And then he goes on, and right after that, he says, uh, verse 20, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to flesh, he'd raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. So the prophecy, we talk about this more than most groups do, the prophecy that talks about the descendant of 
David, who would sit on the throne forever, the eternal the, the reign over the eternal kingdom. This is a prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which also appears in 1 Chronicles 17. But it doesn't say in there, he says, Peter says right here, of being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to flesh, he'd raise up the Christ sitting on the throne. It doesn't say anything about swearing on an oath in in uh, uh, in First Chronicles 17 or in Second Samuel chapter 7. That statement shows up in two of the Psalms. So God makes the promise through Nathan the prophet to David, and then he doubles and triples down on that in saying, I swear that I'm going to do this. By my, my, my holiness, I'm going to do this. That's in Psalm, Psalm 89. Um, he, there he says, I swore to David my servant, I shall prepare your seed forever. I shall build your throne from generation to generation. That's Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4. And then further on in the same Psalm, verses 35 and 36. Once for all, I swore in my holy place, I would not lie to David. His seed shall remain forever. His throne as the sun before me. So this promise... God says, I swore to David, one of his descendants would be on the throne forever. So that's what Peter is saying here. God God swore this to David, and David as a prophet wrote this down. And then again in Psalm 132, and it's uh, 131 in the Septuagint, verse 11, again speaks about the Lord swearing to that uh, one of the descendants of David would be placed on the throne to reign forever. So Psalm, 80, Psalm 89 and Psalm 132. So Peter is, and you don't notice that because there's no, it's not, he's not quoting it, but he's paraphrasing it. He said, well, the Lord swore to David. That's, that's in two of the Psalms. All right. Then he talks about where Jesus is now. He is Seated at the right hand of God. How does Peter establish that? He quotes from Psalm 110. Uh, Verse 34, David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he says, David said, uh, sit at my right hand. He says, this couldn't be referring to David because David's not at the right hand of God. His his tomb is, is here with us here. So this is referring to the son of David, the one who would reign over the eternal kingdom, and that's where Jesus is now. He is sitting at the right hand of God because of what it says in the psalm, Psalm 110. Uh, But it doesn't end there. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are in the temple court. He heals a lame, a man who's lame from birth, who's over 40 years old. And that gets him in trouble with the authorities. That creates a great commotion. And Peter and John are dragged before the religious leaders. And here is the defense that Peter makes. And he this is, this is more of an offense, actually, than a defense. But this is what he says. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders who became the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. So he's quoting here from Psalm 118. He quotes from this again in 1 Peter. We covered that. We was talking about... The stone the builders rejected has become the, the, the chief cornerstone. So he's talking about, there he's talking, in First Peter he's talking about Jesus is the stone on which everything is built. Here he's using this, he's weaponizing going after them. He says the stone which you builders rejected, that they're the ones who rejected him. And he is the one who is the chief cornerstone. So he hits that again. And then right after this, they are threatened. The apostles, so, so Peter and John are threatened 
to, they better stop doing this. They better stop spreading this around. They get together with the other apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, and it says, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard them, they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. Again, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. That's Psalm 2. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. When they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So here he's, that's what they're doing. This is, he's praying Psalm 2 and, and applying it to the situation to understand what's going on and to pray for boldness. In First Peter, we covered this a few months ago, the what I would consider the anchor quotes. Peter is quoting from and alluding to the Old Testament throughout First Peter and Second Peter. Everything, everything is, is like the Old Testament scriptures are coming out of the pores of Peter. Okay, that's that's just that's how he thinks. That's how he communicates. That's that's who he is. He's he's just exudes the word of God in every situation with his friends, with his enemies, with unbelievers. That's that's where he's coming from. Coming from the Old Testament, the Word of God, and the anchor to me, the most significant uh, prophecy that he quotes quote from the Old Testament he has in there. In addition to the one from Psalm eighteen I mentioned earlier, which which is also from the Psalms is where he quotes from Psalm 34. It's the longest quote in 1 Peter. And this is, I think, the most significant. And this is what drove me into studying. Into, I, said, I need to take another look at the Psalms here because Peter quotes from Psalm 34. Uh, let's, let's turn to uh, 1 Peter where he does that. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 3. So Peter is talking about the importance of our persevering in righteousness in all of our relationships, our relationships with the government, with the king, you know, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, treating the king with honor, about slaves, how they need to treat their masters, about how wives need to submit to their husbands, and then he goes after the husbands last, and he, he challenges the husbands. In verse 7, he says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, referring to the wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, says, Husbands, if you are not Christian husbands, if you're not treating your wife with honor and respect, God isn't going to listen to your prayers. Well, how does Peter know that? He knows that because he quits because this is what David said in the Psalms. So he quotes from Psalm 34. He says, He who would love life and see good days, I'm reading in verse 10 in 1 Peter 3, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He's saying, you need, if you want God to listen to you, you better be living at peace with other people and living a righteous life. He's not talking about the righteousness of Christ being imputed upon you. Mm -hmm. He's telling the husbands, if you don't honor your wives, God is not going to listen to you and he's going to be opposed to you. So I'm, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a husband. I've got to take this. This is the hard too. I haven't always been been doing that, but I'm really, I'm really, I've been convicted about this, about really trying to, to to take this to heart what Peter is saying here. But that's the point that Peter's making. Is it, so he's talking about it applies to husbands specifically, but it applies to all the relationships that God listens to the righteous, but He is opposed to the ones who do evil. 
The ears of the Lord are open to their prayers. So this is, I mean, to me, this is like half of half of half of the things that Peter is saying in First Peter are, are really are really hanging on that concept. So, so what do we learn about Peter and the Psalms here? Okay, I counted just from what we. I don't know if anybody's keeping count here. I counted. <laughs> Thank you. So I counted nine psalms just in Acts 1 to 4 and, and in 1 Peter here. Peter is quoting or alluding to, directly alluding to nine different psalms. Psalm 2, 15, 34, 69, 89, 109, 110, 118 twice, and 132. Okay. I mean, maybe I missed something in there, but I counted, I counted nine different psalms, one of them mentioned twice. Now, what does this tell you about Peter, the number one disciple of Jesus, in terms of how he viewed the importance of the psalms? Did he look at the psalms as a book to just kind of go off with when he's having a tough day to, to meditate and feel closer to God? No, this is, this is like... The number one arsenal in his weapon. He uses it in every situation. That Peter realizes the power and the use of the Psalms. And, and it should be no surprise to us uh, <clears throat> that he does that. I mean, after all, when after Jesus rose from the dead in Luke 24, uh, he said, This is what I said while I was still with you. All things must be fulfilled which were written in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Peter was in the room when Jesus said that, and they opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. That's Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. A student, when he's fully trained, will be just like his teacher. So how does Peter use the Psalms? He uses them practically, very practically. Um, he uses them to figure out what do I do in a challenging situation facing the church. He uses it to find reassurance and courage in the face of opposition from religious leaders. He uses it to directly confront, boldly confront hypocritical religious leaders, corrupt leaders. He uses it for evangelism to explain the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and how Jesus is reigning over the eternal kingdom and how Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God. Okay? He used it to explain Jesus as the great stone on which we are all now built together, and to give Christians an extremely practical lesson that God's only going to listen to our prayers if we're living righteous lives. So this is how Peter is using the Psalms. It, you know, the question, obviously, rhetorical question, was Peter, did, did Peter just think of the Psalms as something to make him feel closer to God and for personal devotional life? No, obviously not. So my hope is that all for all of us, that learning from Peter and how he used the Psalms in such a spectacular way will inspire us and encourage us when we're reading the Psalms to see that they're for so much more than just personal devotional life. Okay? So that's a, that's a long introduction to, to, to the Psalms. That's a long introduction to the Psalms. Now, a cu couple of uh, the comments. Psalms were meant to be sung. They were designed not to be read, but to be sung primarily most of the songs are like uh, songs, basically. They're like songs, that's right. And the nice thing about songs is they're easy to remember. You get a song stuck in your head, it's hard. You probably can never get it out of there, okay? That's, that's the, the nature of a song is it reinforces it. You never forget it. It's easy, easy to forget a speech, hard to forget the words of a song. And the Psalms were, for a long time, and in, in many different centuries, many different churches, was basically it was the songbook or the primary songbook of the church. That, that's what the Christians would, would sing to each other. Many churches in the past just used the psalms, and they put the psalms to some kind of uh, music or so they could chant that. And uh, one of the benefits of singing the psalms is uh, you don't have to worry about false teaching. Every once in a while, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be singing a song, looking at it, and say, well, I don't know about that third verse, if that really is true or, is true or not. 
uh, something written in the in the 1700s or the 1800s or 1900s. I'm not sure if that's really true. I don't know if we should be saying that or not. But uh, I appreciate when people point those things out. But, it, but, you, but you can't go wrong singing the Psalms because that's the Word of God. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And maybe that's the reason why, uh, because Peter had them all locked in his brain, is that they just kept coming out all the time when, when he was facing different situations. So the first Psalm, this has a very special significance for uh, those of us in the room this week because, and Susan knows why, and Adam knows why, and I think most of the people do too, is that that we got a a text from Susan this week that they had just placed, uh, Chris Traganos died about a year ago, and they just placed the the grave marker, and uh, uh, so she sent a picture of the front and the back side of, of the gravestone. And this is a very unusual gravestone. It is unlike any of the gravestones in that cemetery, which is totally appropriate. So this is a, this is a, uh, now it's a, it's a, a Christian cemetery, Catholic cemetery, and and, it, and and so there are many crosses and many things that that point to Christ that are in the cemetery. However, this particular uh, gravestone has a very long, an unusually long quote. Which I really appreciate. It's Psalm 1. It's the first three verses of Psalm 1. So let's read that. I'm going to read it from the, the, the New King James Version, from Psalm 1. And this is I'm reading from uh, Orthodox Study Bible. It, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the troublesome, but his will is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, he shall be like a tree planted by streams of waters that produces its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And I think, what a, what a wonderful theme scripture for life. I mean, that's just magnificent. So that was magnificent, totally appropriate. And uh, Alice and I went for a, you know, now that it's, it's spring, you can finally get out and go places in Massachusetts, so I, I decided to, to, to spare no expense. I took Allison out on a, a very luxurious date. We went for a walk <laughs> through Mount Auburn Cemetery. <laughs> but actually, Mount Auburn Cemetery is a beautiful place. It's a spectacular place. It's unlike, you know, a lot of, in, the, in the, most of the towns in New England, the cemeteries are all very staid and conservative and, and every, very plain. But not Mount Auburn Cemetery. Mount Auburn Cemetery. Somebody said we're going to do this cemetery thing differently, and they turned it into basically a spectacular garden. Wow. And so there's all this. It's a beautiful place. I mean, the the foliage, the trees, the plants. It's spectacular. But this this just really changed the course of cemeteries. And so this was a place where all the famous people, uh, starting in the 1800s, and in Boston, they wanted to be buried there. And so you see some monuments and some very famous people and uh, very wealthy people who were there and, and, and fancy inscription everything. But I said, I must say, well, of all the graves that I saw, I like this, the marker in the humble uh, cemetery here locally. The one that Chris had, I thought was much cooler than any of the ones that I saw there. I thought that was really great. So I really commend Susan on, on a job, job well done in, in honoring Chris with, with that, with that Psalm. So so we'll continue reading from the rest of the psalm. This part, uh, uh, we filled, she did a good job filling the entire side of the, the tombstone <laughs> with this quote. We'll read the part that, that comes after it. So hopefully other people will say, I want to read the rest of that who are passing by in the cemetery. Verse 4, not so are the ungodly, not so. But they are like the dust the wind drives from the face of the earth. Therefore, the ungodly shall not rise in the judgment nor sinners in the counsel of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Mm. So this is a very a beautiful but sobering psalm. And, uh, but the lesson here is so simple. And this is one, people, for young Christians, this is like the first place that I want to go. So if you get this, if you, if you meditate on the word of God, Day and night. If you're committed to living this way, your life is going to end up in a totally different direction than if you don't. So this is this is this is so important in life. Um, and the first point he makes several points in here. The, the big one is meditating on the Word of God. He makes some other points here too. I don't want to skip over those. 
he says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And uh, so the first point he's making about who, who or what are you counseled by? Where do you get, where do you go for direction and counsel in life? Um, now, some people go to YouTube if they want for, for direction, or some people go to YouTube, or some people go to whoever is close, the closest person by, or some people go to everybody. I know people, if somebody was asking me for advice, and I was like the third or fourth person that they had asked for advice uh, on a particular particular subject, which is fine. But uh, but I'm, I'm also reminded in, in uh, the wisdom of Sirach, whether you consider this to be inspired or just really, really good advice in Sirach, really wise sayings, uh, I think this is this is a good Sirach six six. It says, uh, "I love this." It says, "Let those who live at peace with you be many, but let your counselors be one in a thousand. I thought, "Wow, there's a lot of wisdom in that." It's like be real selective on who you get advice from to make sure what and whatever field it is, you go to, go to somebody who knows what they're talking about. Be very very selective. Um, I made my living as a consulting engineer, and David makes his living as an attorney. And that's is the principle is, is you want to go to somebody who's going to give you the right advice because giving you the wrong advice can be tremendously costly further down the road, whether it's in worldly things or, or, or even more so in spiritual things. So be very careful. You don't want to go to the wrong person for advice, okay? So don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Don't look to those people for advice in life. It's going to lead to your destruction. That's the first point about your advisors. The second point, and he says, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the troublesome. Uh, and I think about a couple of scriptures. Uh, one is in Colossians 15, 33. I'm going to read this from the, the ESV because, uh, uh, for, for 1 Corinthians 15, 33 I'm going to read that from the, from the ESV because uh, it just it just hit me a little different than a more familiar reading. It says, "Do not be deceived; bad company ruins good morals." I thought, "Ooh, that's that stings." It says, "Don't be deceived," meaning don't fool yourself. People think I can hang around with wicked people and it's not going to rub off on me. It says, "Don't fool yourself." Uh, you're going to be impacted. Bad company ruins good morals. Be careful about who you're hanging around with. And then uh, on, the, on the other side, on the positive side, Proverbs 13, 20 from New King James says, He who walks with the wise will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. So it's the same idea. You're going to tend to become like the people you hang around with. And I refer to this as the, and I didn't mention this to Allison, this is the chicken Marbella principle, okay? <laughs> the chicken Marbella principle, Allison understands that. We had, uh, uh, Allison makes some great chicken dishes, and one of them is chicken Marbella. Chicken Marbella is you take chicken and you marinate it with all kinds of really strange things you'd never want to eat by themselves. It's, I think there's, uh, uh, there are capers, which are bitter herbs, and uh, there's uh, vinegar, and there's other spices that are in there, and but there's also some sweet things that are added. So it's sweet and 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 tart at the same time, and you marinate the chicken in that for a day or longer. And actually, the more the more time, probably the better. Uh, and, and what happens is the the ta- the flavor of the stuff that is surrounding the chicken seeps into the chicken, and so the chicken doesn't taste like normal bland chicken anymore. It tastes very, very spicy. And, but it's the same principle as whatever you're basting yourself in, it's going to penetrate you. It's going to get inside you. So what are you, what are you marinating yourself in? This, this is the question, because that's what you're going to taste like. That's where you, It's going it's to get into the inside, whatever you're surrounding yourself with. This is the, the chicken Marbella principle. Okay, you can feel free to share that with anybody you want. Uh, so what are you basing yourself with? Who are you hanging around with? Who are your closest friends? What are the books or articles that you're reading or the TV that you're watching or the movie or the internet? If you're if you're even watching those things, I was I was I read an article by somebody who was talking about uh, who's some on Netflix. He said he said ninety nine point nine. I don't I don't even I don't even think the guy was necessarily Christian. I don't know, but he said ninety nine point nine percent of the things that are on Netflix 
these are movies. He says they're absolute garbage. Your life would be better off if you never saw it. And he said, okay, granted there's, there's, there's some small, tiny fraction of things that are good. He said, you're actually way better off just not having anything to do with it and just read a good book. And he just threw, he said, like even, even reading the Bible, that might, that might be a good thing to do. So, uh, but, but the idea that you're going to be impacted by the things that you're watching, the things that you're reading, so you need to be selective because they're going to impact who you are. They're going to impact your character and your life. So that's, that's, and, and then he shifts on from there to say, after saying that you got to be careful who you're hanging around with and saying the best thing you can do is to meditate on the word of God day and night. Now this is not, you know, people think this is not just having a little 30 minute quiet time mm-hmm. of reading the Bible in the day and then, and then forget about it and go off on your business until the next morning. He says they're meditating on the word of God day and night. You're thinking about it. So you're reading it, but then you're thinking about it. You're thinking about it. You're working on it. You're working it over in your mind. Uh, and, and I think about, we are talking about Peter before, how Peter used the Psalms. Peter, to me, is, you. I mean, to me, I, I think, if I hang around somebody, I can tell if this is a person who is meditating on the Word of God day and night. Okay, you spend a couple you spend a couple decades reading the Bible and thinking about it. It's going to rewire your brain. Okay, you're going to think differently. You're going to talk differently. You're going to react differently. Okay, it's going to affect you. If you spend that much time, you marinate yourself in the Word of God. It's going to it's going to affect you. And and I can I can listen to a preacher, and a lot of times I can tell. Oh, this guy this guy has been in the Word. Okay, I can tell because he's putting the pieces together. He gets the big picture. Everything fits, and he knows what he's talking about. Other people, they're very good speakers. They're very entertaining speakers, very educated speakers, much more eloquent than, 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 than I, I will ever be. But it's clear that they're not meditating on the Word. And you can tell, I think, if somebody reads the Scriptures a lot, you can tell the difference. It's, it's like day and night. You, you, you know what I'm talking about here. So... But the, 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 the great example to me of somebody who is meditating on the Word of God day and night, and you can see it, is Peter. Okay, It's coming out of his pores. It comes out in every situation, and he understands how everything fits together. And when he's trying to communicate with somebody, he's using the Scriptures, because that's how he thinks. That's how he reasons. It's gotten on the inside of him. Why did Jesus pick him as the, as the uh, as his top student? I, I don't know, but I, I see this about Peter. It comes out in his speaking and in his letters. And keep in mind, Peter is described as an uneducated and untrained man. We just read that in I think in Acts four. So you know these people are these are you know who are these guys that that they're that they're challenging us? They're they're uneducated. They're unschooled, ordinary people. Who are these guys? And I'm inspired by that also because Peter wasn't formally trained in the scriptures. He hung around with Jesus. He knew the Bible. He meditated on the scriptures. Uh, he knew him, he knew him deeply, but he didn't receive any kind of formal training. He didn't get seminary training. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't. He wasn't a. He's a fisherman. He's a regular guy. He's a blue collar guy. And I, I, that's encouraging to me. I've never, you know, I don't have any seminary training. I'm just a, I'm just a regular uh, civil engineer. You know, my job, uh, uh, David was, where David and I were comparing notes. David uh, was talking about how he was, uh, as, as a young engineer, uh, a structural engineer, he's inspecting the, uh, was it the Sumner Tunnel uh, at night to, to look for uh, structural damage in the tunnel, which is a good thing because we drive through that tunnel. And I, and I said, well, I can top you that. I was crawling under the streets of, of Boston and Dorchester in the sewers in the street. I was, I was a civil engineer, so that's, that's what I would do. So talk about humble origins. You know, I have my hip waders on going through the sewers with a, a gas monitor so that, and, and a rope so that if I pass out, they'd haul me out. So, I, come from, I come from a very, very humble, <laughs> humble pro- profession here. As they, uh, they call an environmental engineer, used to be called sanitary engineer. So that's encouraging to me when I see Peter is an unschooled, ordinary man, but he knows the Word of God and can take anybody on with it. 
So that that's an, that's an inspiration to me. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to go to seminary. Just be like Peter, okay? And he's very practical. He uses the scriptures practically. This isn't head knowledge, okay? He's not a. He's not a. It, it, that's not the kind of knowledge he has. Deep and practical knowledge of the scriptures. He uses it that way. So that, that's an inspiration to me. Um, in his letters, he talks about. Just in the course of, he talks in three places in his two short letters about the power of the Word of God. He talks about, in 1 Peter 1, he talks about the prophecies, the wonderful prophecies that hid all these things that were written down by the prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 1 and 2, he talks about how all the glory of man is like the grass and the field and the flowers. It fades away and withers. He said, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. It lasts forever. He sees the, the, the value of the Word of God. He gets that. He calls us to crave the pure milk of the Word like a newborn baby craves its mother's milk. He says that's the attitude we ought to have. And then Second Peter chapter 1, when he's, he's warning the church of all the false teachers that are going to be coming and all the corrupt people that are going to come, and, and, and the one solid piece of advice is he gives, he says, pay attention to the Scriptures. Paul tells Timothy to pay attention to the Scriptures. Peter tells everybody to pay attention to the Scriptures. He says, you all need to pay attention to the Scriptures as a light shining in a dark place to make sure that you don't get blown off course and led mm. astray. Uh, this idea of the importance of meditating on the Word of God is contained so many places in the Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 8, in verse 3. Uh, it, it, after 40 years in the wilderness, when the people are fed by manna, they collect it six days a week and they eat it seven days a week. And, and, and Peter says, God did this to humble you and to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Mm -hmm. This is a map of the Christian life. We're, we're going, we're traveling through, may not look like it, we're traveling through a snake and scorpion infested wilderness where we're being tempted, we're being tested. Mm. We want to make it to the promised land. We want to make it all the way to the end like Joshua and Caleb did into the promised land. That's where we're headed. But it's going to be, it's going to, it's a tough ride. It's a tough trip. We're going to be tested and challenged. But it says, God gave you man every day to teach you. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is our spiritual food. We need it every single day. Mm -hmm. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the group here. I think we're, the, the brothers and sisters here love the word of God or devoted to the word of God and are reading the word of God. And 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 they're striving in the Word of God every day, and I just keep on going and and, and spread that conviction far and wide. Uh, this idea of meditating on the Word of God, okay, you don't, you don't just read it, but you you think about it, you meditate on it, you reflect on it, you chew it over. You know, this is the hard work. I was with someone recently uh, who was wrestling with major decisions in life, major spiritual decisions in life. And he wanted, he desperately wanted me to tell him what to do. He wanted me to tell him what to do. And I wasn't going to do it. So I was going to say, here's the biblical principles, but you need to figure out how to put these things together in your life. Okay? You've got to do that. And, and he wanted to have some wise person, uh, you know, with some gray hairs. I've got those. You see, he wanted some wise person to tell him what to do. I said, no. I, I said, that's not it. You've, you've got to... You've got to work on these things. You've got to think about these things. You've got to figure out. Here, I'll tell you what the principles are, but you've got to figure out how you're going to put these things into practice in your own life. Okay? And he's a very bright guy, but he was, there was he had a streak of intellectual laziness in it. He was much easier to have somebody else tell you what to do. And I said, this is hard work, but this is what meditating on the work means. you got to think about it. You've got to think about it. The picture of meditation, several early Christians uh, talk about this. I'll, I'll put the references in the notes for those who are interested. But several early Christians saw this in the story in Leviticus 11 where God talks about the clean and the unclean animals. 
Okay, and the Christians said, look, this is, this is not about animals. God's teaching us a lesson here in this clean and unclean animal business. The clean animals, two requirements. Number one, they had to chew the cud. All right? Sheep, goats, you know, uh, uh, cows, they chew the cud. You know, if, you, if you're watching a cow, it's out in the field somewhere, and you watch it long enough, you realize that cow hasn't taken a bite of grass in the last half hour, but it's chewing something. What's it chewing? Well, it's chewing something it ate an hour and a half ago. What is it? The, the cows have multiple stomachs, and what happens is it's amazing how, how, they're, how they're, they're designed that they can live off grass. If we had to eat grass, we'd die. We'd starve to death. Okay? We, we, our, our bodies aren't, aren't set up for that, but with all the bacteria and the different stomachs that they have or anything else, they're, they're very complicated, and so they, they will take the grass in, and then once, every once in a while, they'll, they'll cough it up, and then they'll start chewing it again to just pull all the nutrients out of the grass. So they're chewing the cud. They're ruminating. They're ruminants. That's what they're doing. Okay? And the second thing is that it had, the, the animals had to have split hooves, cloven hooves, split hooves. Okay? So that rules out horses. You can't eat horse meat. You can't eat camel meat because they just have one big hoof. Okay. But sheep and sheep and goats and cows, they have split hooves. And so the early Christians were saying, look, this is a lesson for us. God wove this into the scriptures to teach us about what clean and unclean people are. And they said, Irenaeus, several other Christian writers, Irenaeus said, he said, first of all, the ruminants, they're the ones who are meditating on the word of God day and night. They're chewing it. They eat it once, but then they're chewing it. They're chewing it. They're chewing it. They're processing it throughout the day. They're thinking it over. Okay? They're mulling it over. He says, that's the first thing. And he says, however, he said, well, the Jews do that. The Orthodox Jews do that. They think about the scriptures all. They memorize the scriptures. They think about all the scriptures all the time. He said, but they they also, they have cloven hooves. Okay? They don't just have one hoof. They have two hooves. Why? Because an animal that has two hooves, that has two parts of the hoof, they can climb up on the mountains. They're much more sure-footed. Okay? You don't want to send a horse. That's why, you know, goats and sheep, can they can climb up on the rocks, up on the mountains, but horses can't do that and camels can't do that because they've got big, clonky, clonky hooves. It says they're sure-footed because we trust in the Father and the Son. And the only way you can be sure-footed is if you believe in the Father and the Son. The Jews, they only believe in the Father. They don't believe in the Son. Okay, they may be ruminating on the Scriptures, but they don't have the split hooves. He says that's what you need to have. God's teaching us in that story. So they, they, uh, so several other Christians tied this back in with the idea of meditating on the Word of God. It's the animals that were ruminating. Okay, they were chewing on the things. Those were the clean animals. Psalm 119, you know, who knows if we'll live long enough to ever get to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is focused on the, the, the big thing Psalm 119 is known for is it's all the wonderful things about the Word of God and meditating on the Word of God. But I was reading through that again. I noticed something else. Whoever wrote that psalm had an awfully tough life because he's constantly talking about how he's hated, he's beaten up, he's abused, He's disgraced by other people. He's got all kinds of enemies. Every time you know, he's talk, constantly s- sprinkled throughout Psalm 119 is this discussion about how brutal his life is and how many enemies he has. However, in verse 71, I found something uh, completely remarkable. And this is from the New King James. It says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn your statutes. That's Psalm 119, verse 71. Or in the Septuagint, it says the same verse. It says, It is good for me that you humbled me that I might learn your ordinances. So the author went through very tough times in the face of many enemies, but he thanks God for that since that drew him closer to knowing the word of God. Many Christians go through tough times and they get weeded out. Uh, they they give up and uh, 
when you're going through tough times, and sometimes very tough times even within the church or whatever church that you're within, you're, you know, you have, you're, you're, being, you're being pounded, you're being assaulted, you're being treated unfairly. Uh, whoever wrote Psalm 119, that forced him to know the Word of God better. And I mean, honestly, looking back at my life, it's times when I felt like there was no way out and the church was, church was not a safe place. That drove me more deeply into the Word of God, and I know the Word of God better than if I had been in a perfect, wonderful, healthy church all the time. So even when you're going through tough times, God can use this if it drives you more deeply into knowing and meditating on His Word and hanging on to it. It's for, it's, 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 it's for strengthen us when we're facing affliction, that we don't get washed out. Um, Early Christians made uh, saw some some other interesting things here in the psalm. One was the idea of there being two paths. I mean, this this you see this again and again in the scriptures. Uh, Moses says the same thing in Deuteronomy thirty. He says there's a path that leads to life. There's a path that leads to death. Choose life. You, you got two roads you can go down. Uh, here it's, it talks about the two ways in Psalm one. There's the one who meditates on the word of God day and night, and then there's the way of the wicked that ends up in destruction, says he's like dust in the wind. He's, gonna, he's not going to last. He's going to be blown away. Everything everything he, he has is going to be gone in the end. Uh, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 7. There's a narrow, difficult way that leads to life. Only if you find it, there's a broad road that, road that leads to destruction. We're all faced with two choices in life. We see this again and again in the Scripture. We have free choice. What are you going to do when the tough times come? Are you going to stick with God and hang on to the Scriptures or abandon God? Um, there's a, an interesting quote by Tertullian in Nicene Fathers, Volume 3, pages 80 and 81. And he, uh, he was talking about, in his day, the people would go, some Christians would be tempted to go to very worldly entertainment-type things. There would be the spectacles or the gladiator contests or things like that. They're either they're violent or the theater, or they're full with sexual immorality, and guess what? We have the same same stuff going on today. And the world is entertaining people with violence and with, with sexual temptation, sexual immorality. And Tertullian said, you know, he said, all right, I'll give you, there is no commandment in Scripture, thou shalt not go to the theater. Okay, he said there's nothing like that in the Scripture. He said, however, in Psalm 1, it talks about I will not uh, stand in the seat in, 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 the, in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers or plagues. He says, he says I'll give you that one right there, okay? He says, that's what you're doing when you're, when you're going and sitting with all these worldly people and watching the violence and the sexual immorality. He says, that is, that is prohibited in, in, from Psalm 1. So he used that. I thought that was an interesting application. Um, and uh, then I'll, I'll close with one last quote. This is, I thought this was, this was really interesting. A lot of places in the scripture where it mentions wood and water together. In the Old Testament, a number of early Christians saw that as the water representing baptism, and the wood representing the cross. And that interesting things happen when you have the water and the wood together. So some, and I'll, I'll put the references in the notes. Uh, and so this is from Epistle of Barnabas, a very early Christian writing, but there, there's others that mention as well. It says, he says, and he's talking about baptism and the cross are prefigured throughout the Old Testament. He gives, he gives one more example. He says, Again, he, he, uh, he says in another prophet, the man who does these things shall be like a tree planted by courses of water, which shall yield its fruit in due season, its leaf shall not fade, and all it does shall prosper. Not so with the ungodly, but even as chaff which the wind sweeps away from the face of the earth. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the counsel of the just, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. That's Psalm 1 right there, okay? Mm-hmm. Mark how he has described at once both the water and the cross. 
For these words imply, blessed are they who place their trust in the cross, have gone down at the water. For he, uh, for, says he, they shall receive their reward in due time. Then he declares, I will recompense them. But now he says, their leaves shall not fade. This means that every word which proceeds out of your mouth in faith and love shall tend to bring conversion and hope to many. So this was, uh, and whether you whether you accept that or not, this is how the early Christians saw it. They see wood and the water together, and amazing things happening throughout the scripture. This is one example of many. So we will stop there for, for Psalm one. We got a, we got a good uh, good start on the Psalms. Uh, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.